I'm going to ask you to take a little trip down memory lane this morning back to about the second grade. All of you remember what you were doing in second grade? Remember your uh, classroom? Remember your teacher, your second grade teacher, the desks? My teacher was Mrs. Lancer. She was about 120 years old. <laughs> and I just realized I'm still chewing my gum, so... I think thinking about Mrs. Lancer made me think of that. <laughs> so uh, we had these wooden desks that uh, still had the little hole in the right, upper right-hand corner for what used to be used as an inkwell. I'm not that old. We didn't use inkwells when I was in second grade, okay? But the hole was still there. And I can remember many a day resisting the temptation uh, right in front of me sat Tilly Van Egmond, who had long, wavy brown hair. And there was just this temptation to take that hair and tie a knot in that inkwell in the desk behind her. But I never did it because she was a lot bigger and stronger than I was. <laughs> but imagine, imagine that you're in that second grade desk and the teacher all of a sudden calls you to the front of the class and says, Johnny or Phil come up to the class and explain to us in the next 20 minutes Einstein's theory of relativity. That's a little the way I feel this morning. <laughs> Trying to explain or talk about the kenosis of Philippians chapter 2 that Clayton just read. Trying to get our minds around the incarnation about the great I am becoming a humble servant, about the creator of heaven and earth laying in a feed trough wrapped in swaddling clothes. As I've been trying to prepare for today, I have been at a loss to know how to grasp what that looks like. You know, I've heard the story that Clayton read over and over, Philippians 2, read it several times. In fact, I had to memorize it as a teenager. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Even though those words are ingrained in my mind, I still can't grasp it, let alone explain it to you this morning. And so all week, I've just been praying for the Holy Spirit to meet with us today and help us get a picture of what the I am in work clothes looks like. I thought of, well, just this week, I've had two examples of what this looks like. One was last <clears throat> Sunday, excuse me, <coughs> last Sunday in the 8 o'clock service, Brian Vandaloon gave us an illustration of a towel. And he took the towel and he put it around his neck like a bib. And he said, so many of us live our lives with a bib around our neck and saying, serve me, serve me, serve me. 
And then Brian took the same towel and he folded it and looped it over his arm and said, instead, the Son of God came to serve. He didn't come to be served. And I think we could take that picture even a little further and think about using that same towel and washing dirty, stinky feet. So that's an illustration that comes to my mind. Another one is the one that Clayton just shared this morning that we heard from Dr. Sitzer on Thursday and how all of the light energy of the universe from galaxies and novas and supernovas and all of those things that Clayton described all found its way into that small flickering candle. And then Dr. Sitzer says, we had the nerve to blow it out for three days. The great I am becoming one of us. I also thought about trying to use an illustration this morning. I thought, thought about wearing a tuxedo to church. Uh, but since I'd kind of broke the budget, breaking the chair a couple weeks ago, I thought maybe I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't ask Dan for a, <laughs> for a tuxedo for today. But I thought about taking off that swallowtail coat and that tie and then putting on a dingy, dirty pair of coveralls. And, and I thought, that still doesn't quite give us the picture of the great I am in work clothes. All of these came up short, so I'm, I'm not really sure how to proceed today, but I do want to share something that the Holy Spirit downloaded into my spirit on Tuesday morning early. I'm going to share a couple of real life stories, share a poem, and then we'll be done. Probably be pretty early today. I don't have a lot to share. Is that all right with everybody? <laughs> I thought maybe I'd hear some amens there. <clears throat> Tuesday morning, I was kind of in that time between waking up and not really wanting to wake up, you know, that, about that five, five o'clock or 5.30 time. And, and I had these two, this two-word phrase that I'd been praying the night before. Usually when I'm preparing for a message, I go to bed thinking about it, praying about it, and usually I wake up thinking about it. And these two words came to my mind, ferocious humility. Ferocious humility. And I thought, well, what does that mean? Whenever we think of the word ferocious, we think of something, a bad connotation, right? Uh, almost savage. How does that tie in with humility? And then I got to thinking, maybe we have a distorted view of humility. Maybe our idea of humility is sitting in a corner somewhere and never having something to say, but just kind of hanging our head and thinking that we're just supposed to fade into the woodwork. Maybe our picture of humility is, uh, if I was Pastor Kevin, I'd do this right here. I've never, done, never had a chance to do that. But maybe our view of humility kind of lines up with Mr. Rogers on TV, a very quiet, soft-spoken voice who wants everyone to be his neighbor. And I'm looking at the life of Christ and how the great I am became man and put on work clothes, and I, I'm not finding a Mr. Rogers. Oh, yes, he was a friend of sinners. In fact, in the book of Mark, we read in the eight o'clock service, his very first act almost in the book of Mark was to go to Levi's house, the tax collector. And the Pharisees said, why are you eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? And Jesus said, I didn't come to heal a well. 
They don't need a physician. I came to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So picture this, um, the, I'll just call it the Mr. Rogers idea of humility, this quiet, soft-spoken person. Would that humble person walk into the temple at 12 years of age and start to lecture the scribes and the Pharisees who were 60 years old and tell them what God's word really said? <laughs> would that picture of humility, the Mr. Rogers kind, would it, would it go into a temple with a whip and overturn the money changers' tables and drive them out with a whip? Or would that Mr. Rogers picture in our mind, would he, would he become angry with the people who are trying to withhold the children from him? By the way, those are the two times in the Bible that Jesus got really mad. One was when he went into the temple and they were exploiting the poor and trying to sell them uh, sacrifices for their salvation. And the second time it says that he was indignant when the people around him, even the disciples, tried to hold the children back. So he didn't want us, I, I have an idea he was ticked off whenever we tried to keep people from Jesus. That's what I think was the real, the real story. That's the real deal. Because you see, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Ferocious humility. A passionate love, a passionate mission. I'll talk about this a little bit later, but I was convicted this week because so often I lose, I don't see what Jesus sees. When I'm in the line at Walmart, I don't see what Jesus sees. I see somebody in the express lane with 50 items. Another time in, in Matthew 24, Jesus addressed the religious leaders of his day and he said, you generation of vipers, you brood of vipers, he said, you whitewashed sepulchers, outside you're white and clean, inside you're full of dead men's bones. It's no wonder he got crucified. There was something deeply ingrained in the Messiah, the King of Kings, he was out to seek and to save whatever was lost. A ferocious humility. You see, we have a false idea of humility. We think humility is fading into the woodwork of the world and being quiet and, and being subjective. True humility is laying down our credentials for the sake of a cause. A cause that requires us to stand firm and to forcefully engage the culture around us. True humility is having a realistic understanding of our humanity, yet a responsible awareness of our royalty. That's that Philippians 2. Yes, he knew he was God, but he was on a mission. And that changed everything. So today, I want to share with you three books very briefly, two of them very briefly, and then I'm going to dig into the third one a little bit. Three books that were required reading in the DeBoof home when I was growing up. One of them I can almost guarantee you none of you have ever heard of because it was written by a neighbor of mine by the name of Ep Den Hardog. Ep Den, Ep Den, 
Egbert Denhardog was a neighbor whose farm joined ours. He was about in his 80s when I was a little kid, and um, he wasn't a very good farmer. He had probably the poorest 160 acres in Mahaska County, uh, and he didn't really like farming, but he loved to write. And so he wrote a book called The Tramp Preacher. Have any of you ever heard of it? I'm anxious. One person in the eight o'clock did. The Tramp Preacher was the biography of Ezra Temple, who was an itinerant preacher in this area back in the 1800s. He'd grown up in a Christian home and rebelled against God, went out to the sand hills of Nebraska to live a life away from God, and he got dramatically saved while he was out there. The Holy Spirit got a hold of him. He came back to Pella, graduated from Central College, and then started preaching throughout the area and started several churches. One of them is still worshiping today. It's the Lower Grove Community Church between here and New Sharon. Ezra Temple was its founding pastor. He made a lot of bad decisions in his life. He ended up broke. Preachers or churches didn't want him to preach in their church because he had, a, he had a reputation of being kind of rough around the edges. And so when the churches wouldn't take him, he'd jump on a boxcar and he'd go from village to village and preach the good news. He would sing a song and then he'd preach the gospel because that's all that God had called him to do. You see, he had a ferocious humility about him. It was said about Ezra that if he happened to have a dollar in his pocket, which was very seldom, and if somebody else needed it, he gave it to him without a question asked. He chose to live his life in humility, but with passion for the mission to which he'd been called. The second book that was required reading at our house was, oh, by the way, the tramp preacher, Ezra, Ezra Temple, not in any history books. Nobody in this room has heard about him 150 years later. But the church still goes on. They still have a VBS every summer that brings in 70 to 80 kids. It's old school VBS with flannel graphs and poster boards with the choruses on. And my grandkids go there every year and they have people coming to Christ every year at their VBS. It's exciting. That, that little church would fit in that row of pews right there. And it is packed during VBS with kids hearing the good news. So Ezra Temple's ferocious humility lives on. My oldest brother was called into ministry after reading his book, The Tramp Preacher. And he's been serving in his church, I think, same church for 56 years. I think that's got to be about some kind of a record. He's retiring in January. The second book required reading was called God Smuggler Brother Andrew. How many of you ever heard of him? Yeah, a few more. Uh, Brother Andrew was a Dutchman from the Netherlands who God laid a, a heavy burden on his heart for people who didn't have the word of God. And so in the early to mid-1900s, he would, he would go trip after trip after trip into communist China, smuggling Bibles. And the stories that he told of God's miraculous provision are just off the charts. In fact, the Los Angeles Times wrote about uh, an article about this man, and they said, this is better than any spy novel you will ever read. In fact, I'm, I've ordered the books for my oldest grandkids this year for Christmas, God Smuggler, Brother Andrew, of a passionate, a passionate and ferocious humility. And because of it, the word of God spread all over China. Um, on a personal note, my parents, when they were in their 80s, came, they called a meeting of us nine kids one time, and they said, we're going to China. Dad was about 85, mom was about 82. 
And we said, what are you gonna do in China? Smuggle Bibles. <laughs> I kid you not, for two weeks, we weren't in favor. All of us kids says, you know, maybe it's time for you to come home and retire. <laughs> they said, no, we don't wanna retire, we wanna retread. And uh, so they went, they went and spent two weeks smuggling Bibles with a bunch of youngsters. Every day they would load their backpacks with scriptures, walk into communist China and deliver Bibles and then come back. And they told some great stories. Uh, when they came back of God's miraculous provision. Once again, ferocious humility. The third book, the one that I want to concentrate on for just a few moments today, is about a young country preacher named David in rural Pennsylvania. David was saturated with the Holy Spirit with a powerful encounter when he was eight years old, and he knew that he was called to preach. And by the age of 14, he was preaching in churches all around his, his uh, hometown in Indiana. He went on to Bible college and came back to uh, pastor rural churches in Pennsylvania. And one Sunday morning in 1958, David had, a life, had ordered the Life magazine. He was looking through it. And on the front cover was a picture of seven gang members from the Bronx who were on trial for mercilessly beating a, a polio victim to death for no reason. And his heart went out to those seven boys, and the Holy Spirit said to David, you got to do something for those boys. And so that very week, I love this, that very week, it's kind of like Abraham when God said, go under, or go out of her into this land that I've promised you. It said, the next morning, he got up and went. David was the same thing. He got done preaching on Sunday, and Monday he went, he got in his car, and he drove 350 miles to New York City, went right to the courtroom where these boys were being tried, and marched right in with his Bible, and walked up to the judge and said, I want to talk to these boys. And he said, who are you, and what do you want to do? And he said, I'm a preacher, and I want to talk to these boys. And he said, get out of my court. And they escorted him out of the courtroom right there. But some photographer from the newspaper got a picture of this David with a Bible, being escorted out of a courtroom, and it became kind of a national picture of this little country preacher who wanted to help those seven boys. And for months after that, every week, David would drive the 350 miles from Pennsylvania to New York City, and he would minister on the streets to the gang members in the Bronx. There were two major gangs that were in place at that time that controlled the underworld of New York City. One was the Mau Mau's and one was the Dragons. And the leader of the Mau Mau gang was a young man by the name of Nicky Cruz. He was about 21. And I want to tell you a little bit about his story. Nicky Cruz was born in Puerto Rico, uh, one of 18 children. He said later that I was conceived in the womb of a witch. His life was... Uh, totally uh, surrounded by seances and by evil uh, chanting. When he got in trouble, his dad would uh, strip him naked and put him in a room with about a dozen pigeons. And then he would scream and knock on the room so the pigeons would fly around and get angry and they would pick at his flesh. His mom beat him up so many times, unconscious, that he didn't even feel pain anymore. He said, I could take a knife and stick it in anywhere in my body and I wouldn't even feel it. They sent me away because they couldn't control me. I wonder why. They sent me away to New York City to live with my older brother. And he became a part of the Mau Mau gang and quickly worked his way up as the leader of this gang. 
And his whole desire in life was to hurt people just like he'd been hurt. And so these gangs would mercilessly kill with bats and with switchblades and with clubs anybody that crossed their path. And that's the scene to which David stood between these two gangs. They were ready to confront each other. And this little skinny preacher named David Wilkerson stepped right in between them. And he looked at Nikki and he said, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And I love you. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He had to be full of something. I wouldn't have wanted to do that. And at that moment, Nicky took out a switchblade. He popped the knife out and he said, don't you know that I could cut you into a thousand pieces and lay you out all through the street? And without missing a beat, David looked at him and said, yep, and every piece would still be screaming, I love you. That's ferocious humility coming to seek and to save what is lost. In 1911, or 2011, David Wilkerson passed away. He died in a car accident, and Nicky Cruz spoke at his funeral. And I want, to, I want to just give you one phrase that he used during this funeral in describing David. Nicky says, I didn't know who Jesus was, but I knew who David was. And he said, I saw something in his eyes that it must have been like Jesus was. He said, I saw active eyes. And, I'm, and this week as I was reading that that, just, that, that term just kept coming back to me, active eyes. And the Holy Spirit started asking me, Phil, do you have active eyes? Are you seeking and saving what is lost? Are you looking Pastor Kevin talked about it at a Thanksgiving service, about holy noticing. Are we holy noticing? Are we living with active eyes? And I have to confess that a lot of times I'm looking for the exit. And I think I'm probably not alone in that. I like to run from conflict. I like to be humble where no one knows my name and I can just have this quiet church-going religion that makes me happy on Sunday and I can sing with my friends. But God is calling us to a ferocious humility with active eyes. In a moment, as uh, a little later on when the worship team, they're going to lead us in a song and I'm going to ask you to pray a courageous prayer today. I'm going to ask you to Pray for active eyes and for ferocious humility. I think it can change our entire community. It changed New York City. It changed Nikki Cruz, who went on to become an evangelist who has, who has uh, preached in countries all around the world the love of Jesus and the love of a preacher who is saturated with the Holy Spirit. But I want to close today with one poem. It was, it was 1874, I believe, when this poem was written. We've all heard of Dwight Moody, uh, but we've, most of us have not heard of his worship leader. Dwight Moody's worship leader and song director was a man by the name of Ira Sankey. 
And uh, in 1874, they had just hold, held a, a uh, long series of meetings in Glasgow, and they were heading by rail uh, to Edinburgh, where they were going to hold another long series of meetings. And uh, both D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey were just, just wiped out from the, from the crusade. But Ira had picked up a newspaper at the train station, and he was flipping through this newspaper, and he came to the last page. It was all just advertisements, and on the last page, there was this poem that someone had written. And he saw that poem, and he said, that's a Holy Spirit poem. He told D.L. Moody about it on the train, and he read it to him, and D.L. Moody didn't care. He was, his mind was a million miles away, didn't think anything about it, but he stuck that poem in his pocket. He said, I think the Lord's going to use that someday. Well, in the second meeting at Edinburgh, D.L. Moody stood up and preached a fa fabulous message, a powerful message about the good shepherd. And then he walked down about where Clay was sitting and he said, Ira, sing us a solo that'll just close this service. And Ira got to, I don't have a song. I don't know what, I don't know what. And all of a sudden he thought about that, so that poem in his pocket. And the Holy Spirit says, you're supposed to sing that song, sing that poem. And Ira said, well, it's never been set to music. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit said, well, sing the poem. So he got up, he walked over to the organ, he hit an A flat, and he sang a song that sounded something like this. There were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. But one was out on the hill far away, far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountain wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this of mine has wandered away from me. And although the path be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that our Lord passed through ere he found the sheep that was lost. Out in the desert he heard its cry, weak and helpless and ready to die. Sick and helpless and ready to die. And all through the mountains, thunder riven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad cry to the gates of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. 
Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Ferocious humility. Active eyes. As the praise team comes, they're going to sing a song that Actually, this song's been a little controversial in, church, in the church world because some people don't like the idea of reckless love. But I'm asking you to look at that picture and see if that doesn't kind of define what this next song is about. And while they're singing, I, I, I want us to take care of some business this morning. There's two things that I want us to deal with. First off... Are you that sheep? Have you been on the run? There will be people up here that will come up sometime during this song to serve communion. And I know what the book of church order says about communion, that it's for believers. And that if you're not, you know what Second or First Corinthians says, if you're... If you're not in a good place, you shouldn't take communion. What about if this is a table that says, come, confess, and eat? What if this is an invitation of a Savior who says, come home. I've come after you. So if you're that sheep today, I want that invitation to be wide open to you. And the second thing, I want you to be courageous enough to pray the prayer I said earlier. Lord, give me active eyes and give me ferocious humility.